Hello and welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, we look back on the absolute binfire that was 2021. Welcome, beautiful listeners, to 2022. It's far too late for me to say, stand very still, don't touch anything, try not to breathe too hard, we don't want to break this year just yet since we were not given an opportunity to admire the unrealised potential of 2022 before everything went horribly wrong. Again. So why put ourselves, and by extension you, through the ordeal of looking back at 2021? Well, because 2022 is an election year, and this is shaping up to be the most important federal election in years, if not decades. It's important to look back at what brought us to where we are now and how that's going to shape the next 12 months. So join me, my co-host Steve Beatty, and representing the Young Democrats and bringing the perspective of the youth to the podcast, Rhiannon Curnow, as we review 2021. Rhiannon, Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional owners of the lands upon which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. I, I have to say the idea of trying to look back over 2021 and think about what actually happened last year rather than just leave it as the sort of dim, hellish blur that's now behind us all. I wasn't overly keen on that, I have to say. I mean, like when, when we talked about the idea for this session, I thought, yeah, let's do a recap of 2021. And then I started to think about well, what actually happened last year and I, yeah kind of fell out of favour with the idea <laughs> the more I looked into it, what, what actually happened last year. The, the conversation categorised it as the year of disappointment and I thought that was a lovely way of phrasing that, yep, last year the year of disappointment because that's how it kind of felt. It went by very, very quickly and not displeased it's over. <laughs> no. Got to say, like, like 2021 was sort of my annus horribilis mm. for reasons that had nothing to do with the Democrats or the podcast. I mean, the Democrats, ironically, were one of the shining lights for me that sort of kept me sane during that year when um, my personal life fell apart. So, yeah, it's a great podcast. Thanks for coming on, guys. It's awesome. <laughs> we just started like, we're just cancelling 2021 permanently now. <laughs> no. But I have to ask. So, like, let's, let's ask the question, Rhiannon, for you, what was the standout event in 2021? What was the thing that happened either as a one-off or through the year that stood out for you last year? Starts with back and ends with the scene. Yeah, I think for me, consistently, the vaccine has been this buzzword. I know it's directly related to COVID. I know that's something we're dealing with the past two years. But I think, to me, the vaccine has been the thing that continuously comes back and recategorizes and recharacterizes the politics that we're looking at. Um, I think various different responses from these kind of key political figures are reinforcing where the power is, who actually has it, and as somebody who is consistently, I know where my vote goes, but um, looking as young people more generally, I think it's really outlined to me who I should and shouldn't trust, you know. If I recap a little bit, so let's talk about the vaccine. For people who 
haven't necessarily been following it quite so closely. Vaccines really started to be developed in the middle of 2020. They were first going into trials September, October. First ones were approved probably in the USA for emergency use, maybe October, if memory serves, maybe as late as November. Um, And we started to see that vaccine rollout starting to happen in other countries. Australia took the approach of not using an emergency approval. The Therapeutic Goods Administration went through the normal process. It was going to take longer. We were obviously in a position at the time where we didn't have any major outbreaks. The virus was reasonably under control. The economy was going reasonably well. It felt like we had a little bit of time and we waited. Um, And really, we saw the vaccine rollout begin, I was going to say in earnest, but it it didn't really begin in earnest. It began mid-February, late February, early March kind of thing. And when we talk about that sense of who got access to it, who was meant to get it first, um, you know, what was the the logic behind that early rollout? The idea was that we were going to protect the vulnerable first. And in theory, that's still, you know, like one of the drivers of, of the vaccine rollout will protect the vulnerable first. So we had that sort of 1A group, disabled, elderly, aged care residents, frontline workers. Um, they were the people who were going to get the vaccine rollout. And I think pretty much that plan fell apart as soon as it started. And I don't think we really recovered until maybe September, October 2021. Yeah. And that was after outbreaks, basically. That was the only yeah. reason we recovered because people got very, very scared very quickly. It wasn't really any push from government authorities or anything like that. It was because people were scared on their own um, and chose to go and get it. Yeah. In a, in a nutshell, it, what I found fascinating about the the, um, the vaccine sort of rollout just basically falling apart the second it hit the ground was that it, I, I think, finally confirmed for a lot of political watchers that the government didn't know what it was doing. Like the, the um, Morrison skiving off to Hawaii during the bushfires of 1920, uh, 1920, <laughs> 2019 to 2020, you know, he was still relatively new in the role of Prime Minister and all this sort of stuff, and that could have been put down as poor political judgment. But the the you know, him him sort of cheesily and and, and grinningly getting his vaccine, his first shot in at the end of February to kick off the rollout, and then by April us realizing that this was not going well, it kind of just solidified something around the Morrison government and, and the fact that they are shockingly incompetent. I think Rhiannon, to your point around you know, who's being taken care of, who are we looking out for, that type of thing. There there really wasn't a sense of urgency about that initial phase. You know, getting getting the vaccine out into rural and remote communities, getting the vaccine into aged care, both residents and staff, getting the vaccine into hospitals, frontline workers, into police, teachers, disability support workers, you know, people living with disabilities, be they at home or in age, uh, in, in group homes. Like, 
those people should have been vaccinated fast, like with a sense of urgency. And instead we we had that whole, it's not a race, it's not a race, you know, like we're going to do this carefully, we're not going to rush it, like all of that kind of thing. And so you had people, especially when the Delta outbreak hit in the middle of the year, not being able to participate in society effectively because they just weren't protected and there had been no real effort to protect them. And I think at the start even, you couldn't get the vaccine. So I think that was the next issue that happened with the vaccines for a very long time and really is still happening. I'm still seeing now even with the booster shots, the accessibility of the booster shots is it, it doesn't make sense when you say, oh, everybody has to do this, but you can't actually get it. And that was always the message the whole time that you're saying this, but you're not actually seeing what's happening. So you're saying disability support workers have to get two vaccines, but they can't actually get them anywhere near them or you're tra- travelling you know, over an hour to try and access a vaccine just so that they can work. Out in my area, I ended up having to get AstraZeneca because there was no Pfizer available. I wasn't in a hotspot as they were labelling them and I actually couldn't get them. And my choice was, well, it's better to be vaccinated full stop because that was the message I was getting. And in two weeks' time, I'm not going to be able to go and see my friends or go out or do anything like that. I'm not going to be able to visit my nan. I'm not going to be able to go to work because I'm not double vaccinated. So the choice is removed removed from you anyway. Mm. I think at that period is when we realised that, yeah, and it was really shocking. At that, and I remember being gobsmacked at the time when the country realised that the government just hadn't ordered enough vaccines. Like how, how, how do you not do that? Like how... What the, you know, what the, <laughs> and, and and to your point about AstraZeneca, I mean, you know, we had that whole debacle of restricting AstraZeneca for those over 50 because, you know, young people at risk of, of um, I'm not going to begin to try and pronounce it, but the thrombosis issue. And, and, and then purely out of necessity, you and, and thousands of, of your fellow youth were forced to go and get AstraZeneca anyway. For the for the the reasons that you laid out, which was well, I either participate in society or I get the AZ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your your choice was completely taken away. And look, I'm still fortunate. I was able to get vaccinated because I think we're still looking at internationally. There are still numerous countries that can't even access one vaccine for those yes. most vulnerable. Ultimately, I I'm not your most vulnerable. I've now had COVID and I, I was okay. I was healthy and safe whether that was for my vaccine, my age, whatever it is. But I'm ultimately not your most at risk. But for the people who it is at risk where you don't have that choice, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And that the government's response this whole time is has almost completely ignored that, has actually ignored that fact that we're not able to have access, we're not able to have the choice in this. And I think it's that that has made it even more difficult to then try and get you know, information or encourage other people to go and get vaccinated or or just do the right thing because there's so much misinformation. There are so many lies coming down from our from who, who you're meant to trust, who is meant to be in these positions of authority that you don't know who to trust or don't want to trust anyone. Well, this is it. I mean, the government is harbouring rampant anti-vaxxers in its own ranks because it needs their votes in order to maintain their hold on power while at the same time trying to deport a high-profile celebrity anti-vaxxer. It, as you said, it doesn't make sense. Sorry, that's a 2022 problem. That's I was going to say we're, 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 we're drifting. <laughs> we're drifting into 2022. We're drifting into 2022. Um, and I, I do want to come back to the anti-vax sentiment, though, because I think that was an interesting element or an interesting thread in 2021. 
But there was this whole thing throughout the, the vaccine rollout where we, we never really seemed to have enough vaccine to, you know, like to, to administer to a very well-known number of people. We know exactly how many people we have in the country, give or take. We know how many of them are of a certain age. We know where they are pretty much. You know, the, the idea that we, we underestimated or we didn't order the right supply seems absurd given the seriousness of the situation. At least it, it continues to be a serious situation. It wasn't it didn't seem to be taken seriously, and that's that's another uh, theme I think for for 2021 that we've seen, you know, uh, at, at a federal level at least this sort of unwillingness to properly address issues in a timely fashion, and and I think that's going to be a bit of a recurring theme as we talk about some of the other things that went on in 2021, Women's March for Justice, and but the, that that vaccine rollout, you know, we uh, we're seeing the exact same thing play out right now with the five to eleven year olds. We know exactly how many of those there there are. We we knew that the vaccine uh, rollout would begin on January ten, and we don't have enough to vaccinate the the children who fall in that age group. School mm-hmm. starts in two weeks. We are in New South Wales at least. New South Wales has managed to uh, vaccinate eleven and a half percent of that age group in the first week uh, of that program. So with school going back in two more weeks, that's an awful lot of primary school kids who won't be vaccinated. And it's that same lack of urgency we just saw all through 2021. I just think they're doing it really backwards, you know. Consistently it's get the vaccine and then we filter out a little bit of information around why you really should. Why should you actually have gotten the vaccine? Whereas... What should have been happening is let's give that information first. Instead of having our terrifying ads on TV, why don't we make an ad about, you know, somebody actually giving us step-by-step for 30 seconds the points of why vaccines are good, why vaccines work, instead of trying to scaremonger us like a smoking campaign. Because that's not going to work when every single, this is targeted at every single person in the country. You actually need your kids also not to be scared about it in a, as much a non-propagandary way as possible. That's what we should have been doing first and foremost when those 1A and 1B groups were trying to get through. Let's get that information first instead of starting with you have to get this and then try and find it yourself. The fact that Pfizer... Uh, as a manufacturer, came to Australia and said, "How many do you want? We will give you any." Like you know, he, you know, here's a here's a blank check of 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 vaccines for your country, and the government didn't engage with them. That's grossly negligent. In the midst of a global pandemic, that is grossly negligent to not at least sit down and work through the details of of that kind of offer. You know, we we needed and and we need to vaccinate 20 million people twice as 40 million doses. Pfizer said they're yours if you want them. And we sent a junior bureaucrat to, mm. you know, blow them off. And and what and what, what blows my mind is that like I, I and I'm not even a matter of a leader being competent because that is that's a really low bar. But a leader that gave a shit, that actually cared about its their constituents and cared about us as a nation would have said to Pfizer, brilliant, give me 150 million doses 
I'll take care of us. I'll take care of New Zealand. I'll take care of all the Pacific Islands because you, the unfolding disaster in Papua New Guinea is another humanitarian crisis that, that really went under the radar. And like all of Oceania could have been taken care of if we had had a leader in Australia and competence or otherwise. Because it's not just that Scott Morrison isn't you know grossly incompetent, is that he simply refuses to lead on anything. You're not talking about a lot of money either. No. Like 150 million doses, I, I think they were about $20 a dose. You know, you're talking about $3 billion to take care of Oceania and, you know, like vaccinate all of the Pacific Islands and, and just like deal with it, right? Like let's let's just deal with it. And then this part of the world is taken care of. Like if we take care of that and now we've actually created within Oceania a travel bubble of its own and that that we're actually the first region to have recovered from COVID or set up within ourselves a way to actually, instead of that we're so, like the state's on its own, that's a separate issue where we isolate ourselves, you know. But imagine if we, instead of isolating ourselves or even our country and actually set up those relationships so well that we now, like, redo the whole cruise industry start getting the airline industry up and running tourism's back up and running if we had actually thought that what's that twenty dollars per person actually going to be worth in terms of the amount that they're going to spend within the region oh Um, god yeah yeah and 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 to 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 look at it from a a brutal pragmatic economic lens and and not the warm fuzzy socialist humanitarian lens that i just applied to it stop caring about people elena (laughs) I know, it's my fatal flaw. Stick to dollars. <laughs> so, yeah, if we look at it purely through dollars, three or $4 billion investment in uh, enough vaccine to cover all of Oceania would have had a return on investment in the hundreds of billions because no one's economies would have tanked. As, as Rhiannon said, we could have had a travel bubble. All of the temporary migrant workers that this country exploits ruthlessly for our fruit picking and our agriculture and everything else that could have continued on quite happily. We, we, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have that problem. And look, I, I don't actually think it's it's 150 million doses anyway. I, I mm. doubt I doubt there are 75 million people in Oceania. Australia's got 25 and we're by far and away the largest by population in Oceania. Most of those island nations, we're talking a few hundred thousand people. New Zealand is five, six, seven million people, um, I think. So it, it, it wouldn't have cost that much anyway. But we're throwing away, and we still are, we're ploughing back into the ground billions of dollars in agricultural produce because we can't pick it. Again, you know, like for the third harvest of the pandemic, because we, we don't have access to the workers, we can't travel internally, we can't get those people from overseas. And as you say, that could all have been dealt with with a little bit of forethought, a small investment, and it really is a relatively a small investment. You know, they put aside $13 billion or something, or it might be even more for JobKeeper. That's JobKeeper alone. I think it was thirteen billion or one hundred and thirty billion. I can't. JobKeeper was was a lot a lot higher than that. Um, yeah, yeah. It was, it was about forty billion that we gave to the likes of Harvey Norman that who didn't need it. Yeah, thirty. Yeah, yeah 30, 38, 38 billion went to companies who ultimately didn't qualify. Yeah, to put in perspective as as to what could have saved our our region. I want to read to you guys. Uh, this is a bit of a long snippet, but this is um, Tim Dunlop had an incredible piece on his Patreon mm-hmm. around, he called it engineering neglect. And so I've taken it and I'm, I've sort of chopped it down to the bits that I thought were very, very relevant, but I obviously will share it in the show notes. But uh, he says, 
From the very beginning of COVID, there has been a hugely influential and powerful faction within the political class, the politicians, business and the media, who have opposed any and all attempts to constrain the pandemic or to respond to this massive public health problem with any measure that seems to them to favour general well-being over the ability of business to function unimpeded. From the very beginning, they have told us they don't really care about people getting sick or even dying, as long as nothing was done to impede the market. They have been yelling all this from the very beginning, and most people are still in denial that such a faction exists or could exist, or that they have aims other than the general general well-being of the nation. Not only does this faction exist, not only is their agenda to let the pandemic rip so that a non Uh, so that a more entrenched market-based understanding of governance can be cemented into place, but that faction has won the day. We are living in their world now as the daily infections, hospitalizations, ICU admissions and deaths clearly show. The fact that their preferred form of chaos has actually been more damaging to their precious market than the lockdowns they abhor will not change their minds, Because having taken the country down this path, there is no going back, and that was the goal all all along. We can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, and so from here on in, we will all be forced to cope with the consequences of the situation they have engineered. If they cared, if this was actually a case of straightforward incompetence, even the most incompetent government would have found a way to respond that at least tried to address the unfolding disaster. All we are getting is a double down. How much more obvious must they make it before we recognise what is going on? Until we start admitting that what is happening is happening by design, that too many in the political class not only have no interest in our general well-being, but see advantage in letting things continue down this path, with token gestures of amelioration along the way, until we see what is staring us in the face, we will continue down this path of engineered neglect. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the thing about that that strikes me is that idea that now that we're in a position where, and, you know, Australia is currently in a situation where we have a major outbreak. Australia is one of the, the most infectious COVID hotspots in the world on a daily basis, just in raw numbers. Australia is sort of fifth, sixth in the world in terms of daily case numbers. Um, that's not by population. That's just raw numbers per capita, we're fighting for, you know, like a first, second or third with Spain and France at the moment. And there's not a lot in it in terms of new daily infections per capita. We are right up there and we just weren't. We had it under control and you've had this constant push to open up to relax restrictions, you know, for the sake of the economy has been like a fairly constant push. But now that we're in the situation that we are, there's now this sort of uh, rhetoric that says, well, we just need to push through it. I don't believe for one moment the politicians who are saying that and and it's coming in, you know, I, I live in New South Wales, it's absolutely coming from the New South Wales state government. It's absolutely coming from the federal government. I don't think they really have a good idea of what pushing through means beyond a lot of people getting ill, a lot of people ending up in hospital, a lot of people dying, and the workings of our day-to-day social fabric falling apart. Yeah, and we're going down the same path that America went down in 2020, and they're up to 900,000 dead. 
I, I actually think we're in a worse place than America was mm. um, in 2020 and 2021. But what we've seen in, uh, around the world, every time there's been a major outbreak, is that the same things work. The same things work to turn around those outbreaks, whether it's the Delta outbreak in India early in 2021, whether it was the first and second waves in the US in 2020, whether it was the outbreak in, in Victoria last year, there is this sort of clear pattern that says these are the things that work. And our politicians have basically said, and we're not going to do any of those things. No. I think there's this um, real rhetoric around the expendability of people who are vulnerable and you're elderly and that basically, unfortunately, those are going to be at risk and it's this weird Darwinian survival of the fittest, which I, I didn't think we were still living in that sort of world anymore, where, yep, if you if you manage to get through it, good for you, perfect. Your strongest, you survive, you get to move on to the next level. And instead, everybody else that doesn't make it through that has to just stay behind. And I think we're at this point where they go, we don't really care who actually gets through. We just know that some of you will and some of you won't. The one thing that and I guess this is probably from a young person's perspective maybe as well. I was, look, everybody's promised a lot of things. At 18 years old, I was promised that, you know, you'll be able to go and travel the world. You'll be able to go to uni and have these amazing experiences and meet new friends and you'll move out into, be able to go and see different parts of Australia, which I can't still, which anyway, that aside, you know, and that you'll get to have all of these wonderful things and everybody told me try and do those things while you're young you know because you won't get the chance I wish I did those things while I was young and I think the one thing that's getting increasingly terrifying as a young person is and this is where that message of we just have to move on does sink in a little bit for me of how long do we keep going into lockdowns for so I I completely get the point of this is the thing that works and I completely get it but how long do we keep doing that for because I'm not sure where this thing ends anymore because when it all started I think 2022 was the year we all kind of went yeah this is you know once we all get vaccinated we move on and that sort of thing and now we're looking at 95% vaccination rates and so where do we keep how long does this keep going on for? And still nobody's able to give me an answer for that. So, Rhiannon, if, you, if we go back and we think about, if you sort of uh, recall the, the national plan, the modelling that the Doherty Institute, for, for all, its, all its faults, one of the things that it was quite clear on is that high vaccination rates would, would still need some public health measures in order to keep case numbers down not lockdowns necessarily, not stay-at-home orders, not curfews necessarily, but public health measures like masks, you know, wear a mask indoor and on public transport, maintain social distancing, you know, have capacity limits on things like retail, cafes, restaurants, pubs, you know, like that kind of thing. There would still be those sorts of things in place. No, you wouldn't have to stay at home, you know, and you would be able to socialise, but there would be some constraints in place. And those constraints might be tightened or loosened based on where we were in terms of case numbers and and the overall prevalence of virus out in the community. What we saw instead was all of that thrown away in December. Mm. All All of those measures were thrown out. People stopped wearing masks because they were told it's up to you. Uh, it's up to you whether you wear a mask or not. You know, you take responsibility for your health. 
not recognising that you're also taking responsibility for other people's at the same time. I mean, these are public health measures. They're meant to be communal, not individual. But all of that went out the window. And here we are seeing the seeing the result. Um, and I think like that's that for me was one of the the most disappointing aspects of 2021 was this ongoing push towards individualism in the face of a societal wide community wide problem that we we needed to address together. And instead, we had this very very strong rhetoric of individual choice, individual responsibility. Yeah, I think um, the New South Wales December 15th was a very sad, disappointing day when we'd worked so hard for so long. We'd all done done all that right stuff, you know, we all kind of, and sorry, Alana, I know it's a little bit separate for you, um, but don't do this. But December 15th and they got rid of any tracking. So I still don't know where I got COVID, but I my estimated date is December 16th because about four days after that, lost my sense of smell. So about then, so I have no idea. And it was probably at work while I was wearing a mask, sanitizing, social distancing still because my work made sure that, you know, mandated that still. All unvaccinated, anybody who was unvaccinated was able to go out in the public again and masks were no longer mandatory. And then about five days after that, around the 20th, we saw a massive massive spike in the New South Wales case numbers and it has continued to go up from there because you know everybody went to Christmas whether you're a little bit sick you know try and not get tested we didn't have enough tests available they introduced this new thing called the rat testing that we'd all you know was also exciting because you felt like a scientist at home but it wasn't actually and December 15th for me was a real low in all of the measures that we had put in place and was the pinnacle of what we shouldn't be doing, basically. And it's exactly what you're saying, Steve, that we did need to still keep those things going. We should have still kept masks in place. We should have still kept, you know, check-ins within reason that, you know, you check in at your hospitality venue so that we can keep up with it and that sort of thing. And that I, I don't think people would have had issues with that, you know. You keep somewhat capacity limits. You try and keep masks if you're at you know, you go to the the theatre or anything like that. And now what's happened is we've lost all of that because we couldn't keep those basic things in place. So I completely agree with you that, you know what, we always knew that the world was going to look different after this. I think it's, you know, same as your, your 9-11 where it was going to change the way that we looked at the world and the way that, you know, we travelled around the world. Security was always going to look different and we had different fears and approaches to different, to, you know, people around us. I think this was going to do the same thing and we always knew that the world was going to look different after this. But people are still wanting to go back to 2000. 19. People still want to go back there and we're not going to go back there. I think, Steve, you're absolutely right in terms of, yep, so we need to do those things so that we can have those freedoms, we can travel and, and everything like that. But whilst ever we're not, whilst ever we don't have that approach, people still can't give a number of when do we get back to what the new world is meant to look like? Sure. When do we get too- forward to the new world? Sorry, there's, I have two things for that. One is, and we have to expand that whole thing of, of, we, you know, we need to vaccinate, test, trace, isolate, quarantine, socially distance to the whole world. And it gets back to the point we made before about how an actual leader in Australia could have looked after Oceania. All of the rich countries in the world should have done the same for the poorer countries 
who are still, you know, still have the majority of their populations completely unvaccinated because they can't afford to buy vaccines and the rich countries are hoarding them all. The second one, and uh, it's entirely fitting for the first podcast of 2022, that I've got a quote from the inimitable Andrew P. Street on just this very issue. And he wrote, not only is the New South Wales economy the nation's largest and therefore essential to the whole, we save the economy through our can-do capitalism narrative Morrison and Treasurer Josh Frydenberg have been unconvincingly pushing for the last few months, but Scotty also wanted to take credit for Sydney siders being freed up to stop with all that annoying mask and QR code stuff and spend like the Dickens ahead of Christmas. Once New South Wales opened up in defiance of the other states, the die was cast. Victoria and Queensland followed suit, albeit with many more restrictions. WA opted out and continued at hard border closure to provide a control for the experiment entitled, What Happens If We Don't Encourage an Epidemic We Can't Possibly Handle? None of that happened successfully. No. (laughs) Sydney Siders didn't spend up big at Christmas time. We haven't been going to restaurants and cafes the way we normally would. People haven't been holidaying the way that they normally would. Beachside towns up and down the New South Wales coast are barely ticking over versus the crowds that we normally see, you know, like flooding those towns. None of that is happening. Experiment as far as, you know, like boosting the economy goes has well and truly failed. Real irony in the five percent of New South Wales that was allowed out, kind of from the from the fifteenth, is now that seven percent of New South Wales now has COVID, um, like currently has COVID. Seven percent of New South Wales, not including all of your close contacts, that would actually also be part of that. So I had fourteen close contacts. So let's say every person only has ten. So you're looking at most of New South Wales is shut down anyway. So we don't need any restrictions because we all have to stay home anyway because you're yeah. in some form of isolation. And the, the spending patterns are, are showing that um, in in New South Wales and Victoria at the moment. I think in the month of December. Uh, the ANZ reported recently that we're basically spending as though we're in a hard lockdown. That's sort of where we are. And that's going to mean and and is meaning that people are losing jobs, businesses, you know, small businesses are closing, large businesses are cutting back on the hours that people can work, you know, restaurants, cafes, etc. are operating at barely bare capacity. It's flowing right through the economy. Rhiannon and I were discussing uh, before the podcast, uh, re- you know, Rhiannon sort of made this comment about, you know, the perspective of me being in WA and she said, oh, I guess, I guess, you know, it's a, sorry, it's a dilemma because, you know, you want to get back to normal. And I, and I said to Rhiannon, well, the d- difficulty for WA is that we kind of have been completely normal for the last two years because of our, lo- our hard border, because we essentially pursued a zero COVID strategy. WA has been living as if it's been 2019 for the whole pandemic and if and when we open up in February we're being asked to accept a level of disease and subsequently death that we've never been exposed to the longest lockdown WA has had over the last two years has been for one week and our economy has boomed you know yeah. we've got a five billion dollar surplus like I mean much as Andrew P Street was joking about us being a control and an experiment, it is actually true because like WA has demonstrated what an effective zero COVID strategy would have meant for the country and also the world. Like the whole world could have shut down for two months and just nobody moved 
and yes. we probably could have eradicated it. And if you go back 12 months to be to the beginning of 2021, that is where a lot of us, uh, most of the country was. That is the situation. Like at the beginning of at the beginning of 2021, Australia had racked up a recorded 28,000 cases in total. New South Wales recorded more than that today or yesterday. We on on January the 1st, 2022, just now, we had increased that to 430,000 cases, which is a massive increase. Yeah, it's a massive increase. But in the 2 weeks since, we've added 1.2 million cases. Bloody hell. That's that's 120th of the country. Mm. 5% of the country in the last fortnight have caught covid. Just to be the smug West Australian, do you know how many people caught COVID in WA yesterday? One, two. two. They probably two. were probably in quarantine anyway as well. They were yeah. isolating because they yeah. were close contacts. So, yes. yeah. Um, we and, and we, we sort of separate ours out. So we have the community transition ones and we have the ones who have come in through trouble. And I think we had about, yeah, we, we're still doing that. <laughs> um, but I think we had like seven who've, who've sort of, you know, who came basically off the plane into quarantine and were, detected, uh, and then two community transmission cases who were already isolating. Can we, can we move on from COVID? Um, Dear God, as yes, much please. As, as, much as, <laughs> as much as it is, you know, one of the defining events of 2021, and there's lots of it that we have talked about and could continue to talk about, I think the other big thing for me or another big thing for me in, in 2021 was Grace Tame being named Australian of the Year. Her acceptance speech really set the tone around sexual violence, sexual assault, uh, brought that topic out into the public domain in a way that is both necessary and has taken far too long. Brittany Higgins came forward with her story a few weeks later in February, so her her story of a sexual assault that occurred at Parliament House, I should say her story of an alleged sexual assault that occurred in Parliament House in a minister's office late one evening, the way that was handled or mishandled, again, was a big, big story in and of itself, but it formed part of a broader narrative around the Me Too movement that has been going on for a number of years, women coming forward, calling out sexual assault in the workplace, sexual harassment, uh, sexual violence in various forms. And then we saw the Women's March for Justice on March the 4th, basically 12 months to the day from the release of the Respect at Work report by Kate Jenkins. That was that was a big deal. It's massive. Huge. I and, and it's funny because when I was when I was looking back on 2021, I actually had this moment of total temporal um, temporal sort of dislocation where I was thinking, did the March of Justice actually happen in 2021 or did it happen in 2020? And I had to go look it up because it just didn't seem real that it happened in 2021, but it did. And look, I I went to the one in Perth, which happened the day before. And I think I think the reason why it felt weird for me because it's like we weren't in like year two of the pandemic then, surely, because again we were there, we weren't masking, we was completely normal. But it, it feels like this the, the beautiful conjunction of Grace Tame being awarded Australian of the Year, and then in turn inspiring Brittany Higgins to, to speak up and then in turn, you know, everything that unfolded from that was just, you know, it really felt like a reckoning that was long overdue. And it also leads into 
the Christian Porter saga and the allegation of historical rape that he vehemently denies because I don't want us to be sued and the tragedy of of his alleged victim Catherine Thornton and and I think with bookending this was the extraordinarily tone-deaf response from the government to all of this. Uh, I'll never forget Morrison's genuine and heartfelt confusion when he'd pull out the as a father of daughters trope and then the female-dominated press gallery basically called bullshit on it and went, well, what happens to all the men who are not fathers and not husbands how are they supposed to process this? And 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 I, you know, not not to have a go at Morrison, but it was it was really telling how genuinely confused he was. Like he did, just couldn't compute it on any level. And I, and it, it, that sort of seemed emblematic of the government as a whole on that issue. Yeah, I think um, there remains the, there's almost this new silence, which is not the silence that we wanted to hear. So I think women in these instances. Ha- were silent for far, far too long and we're still, unfortunately, there are so many women who are out there who still are not able to speak up. But the silence we didn't want to hear was from those leaders didn't have a good response, who didn't have an answer, who didn't listen properly, who didn't who who didn't start writing, you know, legislation of how we could correct this or what cult, cultural changes can we actually have a look at and genuinely listening. It, it was the wrong silence. We we wanted to hear the silence of a of a listening ear, but instead we we heard words that may as well have not have been spoken. For me, it it's the start of something that's continued on for a while it's it's the beginning of this new chapter hopefully in 2022 we are looking at at a few more answers around that I I hope that it's not something that's going to be used for election campaign but I'm sure it is that it's given open empty promises but something that is actually truly addressed with a change of government absolutely be an empty promise I can tell you that now. It will absolutely be used as a campaign thing. And I say that because legislation has been tabled for public consultation around addressing a variety of issues with respect to you know, violence in the workplace, harassment, etc. But it's been given a two-week public consultation period in the middle of this major outbreak, in the middle of the school holidays, which, which feels... But it, it doesn't just feel, it, it is completely inadequate and is pretty much on par with the rest of what we've seen in terms of a response to what is a serious and widespread issue. And I, I want to also call out the women in the Morrison government who I, th- I think failed women of this country just as badly as the men of the Morrison government did. Because the whole issue didn't become a, a matter of women versus men or, or anything like that. It really did become an it split along ideological pathways. And the likes of Anne Rustin and Linda Reynolds and Michaelia Cash choosing to prop up their government's woeful response to this rather than speak on it as women and as human beings was even more disappointing than the fact that Morrison was completely flummoxed by the whole notion that women were autonomous human beings. The recommendations from the Jenkins report, I think memory serves there were 49 recommendations in total. Six Mm. have been adopted, only six. And, and not for good reason, the, the remaining recommendations. Actually, it might be 
55 in total and 49 aren't being aren't being implemented. A handful are, and only a handful are, and it, it really it really doesn't seem to have a good logic behind it. I mean, there, there are times, you know, like when a Royal Commission or a Productivity Commission report or Commissioner um, Jenkins in, in this case, where, you know, some of the recommendations can't be done together necessarily or they need to be done in stages, fair enough. You know, we'll do this bit and then that lays a foundation for us to do this next bit later. That's not what's happened. Essentially, the government has said we're going to do this small part of it slowly Let's, let's also, you know, like the Jenkins report was tabled in 2020, in March 2020. The government sat on it for 12 months. The Women's March for Justice, one of the things that was put on the table was you need to do something about the Jenkins report. You need to do, you know, you need to actually listen to the recommendations and, and implement them. It took a further six months for our national summit to take place. And then only six of the recommendations to be picked up. I mean, that's mm. you know, I, I've, I've seen people talk about the the approach of this government as being go late, go half-assed type of um, approach to things, and and this is a good example. I mean, mm. it's it should feel insulting. Mm, it is insulting. There's a clear pattern of a day late and a dollar short in everything this government does. And especially, and it's especially insulting because Jenkins very specifically said, "Don't cherry pick this. This, you know, these recommendations are designed to be put together as one piece, as you said, Steve." And the government promptly went and cherry picked the whole thing. I could have understood if they actually, you know, maybe there were nine of them that they went, "Oh, I don't know. Maybe we'll think about these. We're not ready for these ones." But to the nine was only the ones that they considered. Like it just. It just once again epitomises what this government is about and it's not about any true att- attempt at change. They're, they're not trying to make a difference and I, I don't know why we would expect that. I don't know why I would expect that. You know, maybe you hope for more from your leaders. Why not? Hmm. This is a major issue. It shouldn't be the case that people show up for work, anybody shows up for work and isn't assured like absolutely assured that they will be safe. I get that that should be a pretty fundamental part of the way in which our workplaces operate. It shouldn't be that we've got rules around spills and, you know, whether or not you need a safety harness when you step up a ladder, but then people are being sexually assaulted and, and sexually harassed at work as a commonplace thing. The the numbers of women who report sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace should be a source of incredible shame for every man in the country. Like it really should be. We, we mm. should be shamed in our bones that that is the normal and common experience of women in the workplace throughout Australia. It, it really should be shameful for us. And I think also for the country like to look at our national parliament as the single most unsafe workplace in the world, uh, not the world, the single most unsafe workplace in the country for women. This is the place where the laws that protect women in other workplaces are legislated and women in those in that building are not safe. 
And then look, you know, the pandemic sort of overrode everything, but the fact that that did not bring down the government, the fact that it just sort of just disappeared in in the um, you know the raging torrent of everything else that happened in twenty twenty one is just it's unbelievable. COVID to disappear because it actually allows them to kind of hide from anything else that's going on because you can go we go we're dealing with something even bigger well it's not even bigger because you're talking about 50% of your country's safety you're talking Mm, about 50% of your country's safety as opposed to what you've now said is only going to be a small percentage that's actually going to be affected by this it's only your most vulnerable well you're talking about 50% of your country right now is at risk or if they go into that place that is meant to be the epitome of what our country stands for it is meant to be the place where we legislate safety and you are not safe there what's the point of anything else what is the point of anything else that should have been of the utmost priority and once again we're left with a shitty answer (laughs) and it shouldn't and it shouldn't take the prime minister's wife to remind him that it's it's actually an important issue for it to get any kind of airtime. I mean, that that in itself is just uh, ridiculous. For a grown man to sit there and say, actually, I had a chat with my wife overnight and, and she made it clear to me that actually this is something that I should care about. Mm. This is something I was going to table to the side of something that's not really that important. Like, yeah. But yeah. The, the, the approach to the whole issue really, really sort of, it, it summed up the government's thinking on it, which was what bits out of this out of the Jenkins report can we cherry pick to make the women happy but doesn't actually mean that the men have to do anything different. The men's power, privilege and ease in life won't be affected by doling out these little bits and pieces to make the women feel better about themselves. And that sums up that government. I don't know all of them inside and out, but most of them from my understanding are the ones that basically gives you more time, like gives the woman more time to actually file a complaint about it. It makes sure that it's it's definitely prohibited. You're definitely not allowed to assault somebody in the workplace. I know it wasn't clear before, but you're definitely not allowed to do it now. Like it's those things that, yeah, you're right. Your behavior doesn't actually have to change. It's the easy stuff that can say, oh, well, we ticked that off. Yeah, we're done with that. Thank you. Good writing, Mm. you know, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's no. Nah. <laughs> I could go on. There's another one we could go on for hours about this because it's you know. Yeah. Yes. <sighs> All right. Let's draw a line under that part of the discussion and and pick on another thread of go late, go weak, and talk about climate change. Climate change exists last year. Climate I, change did exist in 2021. I didn't, yeah. I didn't think it, it existed because nobody it, mentioned it. Flew it. Under the radar. it flew under the radar a little bit, but yes. But we, we essentially wasted 2021 as an opportunity to really make an impact on climate change. If you think about our journey of this time we have, this decade leading up to 2013, where we've got 10 years that are critical to reducing our emissions, getting ourselves on a path to decarbonise the economy, you know, like really make some sort of deep structural changes to the way in which our economy operates. We had the pandemic as an opportunity to invest. The economy needed stimulus spending so we could spend more than we might otherwise. We could use debt as a way to spend extra money. And essentially, we wasted 2021 by not making any progress and actually going backwards in terms of approvals of new coal mines, approval of expansions to existing mines, 
the extension of coal-fired power. You know, yes, we increased our, our installed base of solar and wind energy, which was good. And mostly that occurred despite the federal government. But I think all around the country, with the possible exception of Tasmania, every state government had an each-way bet in terms of we'll shift to renewables, but we'll also continue to log native forest, open up coal, open up new gas type activities that mean really we didn't do anything significant in terms of addressing our carbon emissions. Now, the, the way the state governments and particularly your government, New South Wales, has approached, because it, it's fascinating to me because on the one hand, Matt Keane and the New South Wales government is held up as the uh, the gold standard of trying to approach climate change because Matt Keane is actually, he's managed to corral the nationals and actually get agreement to to aim for net zero uh, by 2050 and everything else in New South Wales, yet at the same time is approving the expansion of coal mines in the Hunter Valley and, and the approval of new coal mines in the Hunter Valley. And they square that equation by saying, well, all those all the output from those coal, coal mines is an export and that coal will go overseas and get burnt in a different country and therefore that doesn't contribute to our emissions. And it's like, it's, but we have one atmosphere on this planet and, it, it, yeah, it, it just doesn't make any sense, but it's creative accounting at its most dire. And I think also if we looked at the the piece that I read from Tim Dunlop in terms of not caring if we live or die as long as this particular faction benefits, the same, th- the same thing applies, but writ even larger for climate change. And we saw it unfold in 2021 with the, the gas-fired recovery and the idiocy of um, you know, the Morrison government you know, getting gas executives to advise the government on how to, to re-stimulate the economy out of a pandemic. We went through a period of denial 80s, 90s, early 2000s, where people denied that there was a real problem. We are well and truly in the area of delay. Rather than taking aggressive, proactive steps and and genuine steps, and, and by genuine, I mean put a moratorium on all new coal, all new gas, any expansions to existing things, cancel all petroleum exploration licenses, you know, like anything to do with new fossil fuels, just stop it. Just stop it. Like that's that's the last one. Whatever we did last week, let that be the last one that we ever open, right? Like no more. That's that's step one for me that shows me that a government is serious. And until such time as either the federal government or the individual state governments step up and say, we've opened our last gas well, we've opened our last oil well, we've opened our last coal mine, we're not going to expand anymore, this this is the peak, then they're not really taking it seriously. And the, the rest of it is a balancing act of delay. What can I say and do that looks positive, but really is just there to balance out the, the ongoing bad that I'm doing? The idea mm. that, you know, like I can dig up coal and export it overseas and let somebody else burn it and that's not my problem is disingenuous at best. Mm. And it ties into what Dunlop was saying about this whole thing of delay is to get to the tipping point where we can't do anything about it. It is, it's the let it rip strategy for climate. And once we're in that world, 
there's no turning back. And the the career prospects of the generation that comes after Rhiannon is Mad Max style Roadrunner or Mad Max style Apocalyptic Desert Warlord. Those are your two career I choices. I think that is yeah, that is. <laughs> and I think that increasingly, as we, I, I was going to say increasingly, as we take increasingly less action, but as less and less action appears to be occurring look we we were dealing with a pandemic i'll give a little bit of a little bit of leeway that there you know that maybe everything wasn't going to go as ahead of schedule as it should have been but to, it almost just felt like and that's kind of what i said at the start that oh did climate change actually actually exist in 2021 because it genuinely felt like it just wasn't something that was even on people's radars it, it wasn't something talked about it didn't make our media i do think our media also needs to be held very accountable for a lot of this stuff because i think it is and increasingly the the media that we are receiving it, it's actually terrifying me a little bit in how limited it actually is in in what we in what news we get because it will just be one story over and over again and that's the only choice that you really have. But so we won't hear about climate change and then we kind of ignore it and then we forget about it and then we get around to this kind of point where we're reflecting back and go, hang on a second, what are we actually doing? And so now we're looking ten years ahead and we go, oh well, we now we've wasted a year. Twenty twenty was all the year of plans, you know. So twenty twenty was our year of plans and what are we going to do for the next? 10 years and now everything stopped because we've had this pandemic and then we're going ahead and hang on a second suddenly we're eight years into the future and oh we ran out of time but sorry we were dealing with a pandemic you know this is that we could only look at one thing at a time we're not really which more and more Scott Morrison I think would only be able to cope with the one thought at a time but we've got no future direction and so the Mad Max style world of the future is looking more and more present. The frustrating thing for me, Rhiannon, is that we we could have done both. So we could have addressed the, the economic side of the pandemic. If you think of like all of that big infrastructure spending that was in the budget, you know, we added, I think, a, an extra $15 billion in infrastructure spending in this year's budget. We increased the overall pipeline from 100 to 110 or $115 billion in national infrastructure spending. That extra money could have gone towards... Uh, renewable energy projects. It could have gone to a national rollout of big battery infrastructure in, in every state, located in areas where we, we invested in renewable energy and built a solar farm, built uh, wind farms, tied it in with these sort of large uh, utility scale batteries and begun that process. That's where you spend that $15 billion. Instead, we're propping up gas producers and promising to buy their gas in New South Wales and promising to build a, a gas-fired power plant in New you know, like that's that's going backwards instead of the way in which we could have gone, yes, we need economic stimulus. Yes, some form of that economic stimulus can come in the form of, you know, large-scale public infrastructure. All of that infrastructure could have been in renewable energy and the associated infrastructure that we need in the transmission lines, in the um, firming technologies that we need, the, the switching technologies that we need, the battery technologies uh, or the battery uh, infrastructure that we need. That, that was a good way to spend that money, stimulate the economy and help with the economic fallout of the pandemic. And instead, we wasted it. We wasted yeah. the opportunity. Yeah, there's a running joke around cat owners that all orange cats have, um, they have one collective brain cell and they have timeshares on who gets to have the brain cell at one given time. And I feel like 
that applies to our, our current federal government. And that's why you only ever see one minister at a time because they've got the brain cell at that moment. <laughs> it would explain a lot. Yeah, it does, but it ties into the fact that we don't seem to be able to deal with more than one thing at a time. So we can't can't roll out vaccines properly because we're busy dealing with the fallout from uh, the government's Me Too moment. We can't address climate change because we're busy dealing with the pandemic. We can't order rapid antigen tests and deal with the super spreading disaster zone that New South Wales is turning into because we need to save the economy. A timeshare on brain cells would explain <laughs> an awful lot. Yeah. Whether it's just one or just, you know, a, a small pool. Small. Um, like it's a small pool. Give them some credit. Like but <laughs> on 1st of January last year was Advanced Australia Fair had a small change to it from for we are young and free to for we are one and free. And I, I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were for probably the biggest cop out of the year. Oh, and that they set the, the, the bar really high, really early, January 1st. No less. My instinctive sort of gut reaction to that was, and apologies for the language, but it was kind of like, you've got to be fucking kidding me, you know, <laughs> because, and as you said, it was the single biggest cop out of the year last year. You know, we have the Uluru Statement of the Heart. We have all of these steps that our First Nations people, I shouldn't say our First Nations people, because that, that denotes ownership and we don't, but our fellow First Nations citizens saying they've been they've waited literally centuries for recognition, for inclusion in this country as equal citizens, and we deliver a one-word change to the colonial national anthem as you know that's our that's our contribution to Indigenous recognition and reconciliation for 2021. Well done, Scott. That, that's, I think, the only thing that happened on that list in terms of any move to better recognise our First Nations Australians. That's it. I just thought it was start off the year. I, it almost looked like it was going to be a positive thing that, you know, yeah, we're starting off the year with, with something of change and maybe that going into the rest of the year that we would have had some better acknowledgement, better acknowledgement, maybe our Australia Day was going to finally change and and look at appropriately recognizing you know indigenous australians and and once again it is just this symbolic thing that doesn't actually do anything no and it's empty symbolism yeah mm. yeah it was, it was an it was it was largely empty symbolism i think the the idea of a genuine attempt at reconciling our colonial past and and the damage that was done and continues to be done to the people who were here long, long before us, we, we have a blueprint. First Nations uh, Australians um, themselves have given us that blueprint. The Uluru Statement from the Heart lays out three things respectfully presented to white Australia and to the rest of Australia or non-Indigenous Australia. Here's what you want. Like uh, here's, here's what we want to see from you here's how we can work together, here's a journey that we can take together and we respectfully invite you to join us on that journey and we've ignored it. And instead we changed one word in the national anthem, as you say, uh, Elena, it's the colonial anthem. That's not the way to go about it. Like that's, that's demeaning. It's, it's, mm. it's, not, it's not a genuine attempt and, and we, we uh, have seen a lot of that 
throughout last year, but also I think over the last eight years, we've just not seen a genuine effort to engage. We've not seen genuine effort to reach out. We haven't seen a genuine attempt to listen at, at all still. It's, it's, it's one of my hopes for 2022. Like I, I absolutely hope we see a change in government. And with that change in government, I hope that one of the very first things that happens is that someone from the Labor Party stands up in Parliament and says, we move to adopt the Uluru Statement from the heart. I really hope so too. Because I feel like that, that cop-out was bookended really brutally by the absolute failure to protect First Nations populations from the pandemic in the second year of the pandemic. New South Wales, uh, sorry, Sydney, Sydney, Greater Sydney had the, its Delta outbreak in September because the government didn't lock down fast enough and comprehensively enough and rerouted vaccines from rural New South Wales to Greater Sydney. And then that left the Indigenous dominant Wilcannia a sitting duck for the pandemic when it reached it and yeah. more national shame for us. We insult them with this one-word change to our colonial uh, national anthem and, and also the smugness with which Morrison announced that. It's just like, go me, I've solved, I have solved the, the First Nations crisis and then it's bookended by the devastation of Wilcannia. And, and the ongoing destruction of their cultural heritage. We mine their sacred sites. We ignore their entreaties to protect them. You know, we, we say that we'll uh, consider protecting those sites instead of developing them, and then we develop them anyway. You know, we have processes in place that essentially make it easy to ignore those entreaties. You know, like none of that is genuine. Absolutely none of it is is genuine none of it feels like a good faith attempt to engage it feels uh, simply like a, a, a continuation of 224 years 34 years of colonial misery absolutely and i really do hope we see a a change in direction this year i really really do me too I think the unfortunate thing is, I think once again, even for the Australia Day theme for this year, um, respect, reflect, celebrate. Once again, it's kind of those empty words of here's what we're doing without any real change to back it. You know, maybe maybe it's going to come around on Australia Day and there's going to be a fantastic big announcement that in acknowledgement of our, our proper reflection, you know, we're, we're changing the date and we're also, you know, we're actually going to accept the Uluru Statement of the Heart and actually have a First Nations voice. I highly doubt it, though. But, you know, it's always nice to dream. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's just, once again, empty empty words, empty promises. A, a lot of emptiness in 2021 by the sounds of it. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that I mean, apart from the, the individual disasters that unfolded in 2021, the sort of overarching theme that emerged in 2021 was the, the slow realisation that Australia is not a nice country. And and it came up in, in so many different ways. Like we, we think of ourselves as, you know, a bunch of larrikins, we're good people at heart, you know, we're, we're, in, we're a nice people. We're not China, we're not Russia, we're not the Saudis. We're a nice country. That lie and that, that delusion was laid bare, I think, last year, not just in the way we treat First Nations people, it was in the way that we treated the Afghan people when our 20-year adventure in Afghanistan came to a an abrupt a, end. 
abrupt, abrupt and, and, and humiliating end and a tragic end for the Afghans. It's the way we treated Timor-Leste and the way that we're continuing to treat the people who blew the whistle on what we did to Timor-Leste, the way we treated our own citizens during a pandemic, the way we're continuing to treat our own citizens during a pandemic. It's, it's, there's something really, really ugly and just nasty in the Australian psyche at the moment and is that whole thing of a fish rots from the head and you know we have had eight years of a just truly repulsive government in place and and the country reflects that I think. One of the things that I I would throw in to the discussion as, as some semblance of a positive is that that clarity that you've just spoken about, the, the the clearness with which Australia's institutionalised racism, our colonial history, our disregard for the vulnerable has been laid bare, hopefully affords us an opportunity for the beginning of some real healing. Yes. You know, like, because that's the Uluru Statement from the Heart says the first thing we need is truth-telling. And until we're actually going to be honest about our history and until we're going to be honest about our present, we won't have a different future. I think the the same applies to climate change. I think the same applies to our treatment of the elderly. I think the same applies to our treatment of women. You know, like and, and, until we're actually willing to be honest about what's important to us and what we value, then improving those things and, and actually you know, dealing with those issues and doing something to, to take positive steps is really impossible. So the, the fact that that has become such a prominent front and centre recognition, realisation, hopefully that means that we're, we're actually ready to start taking some steps to address it. I really hope so because I feel like it that laying bare of the national character, like it's happened across so many different avenues, whereas in the past it would be one aspect of Australian society and we were free to then go, oh, but that's just that very isolated incident. But 2021 really, you know, again, it was relations with First Nations, it was how we treated our elderly, how we treated our young people, our vulnerable people, the disabled community. It's it's how we treated, you know, and, and this I, I I probably sound a bit bit smart arsey when I say this, but it's how we treated white middle class people in this country. Because all of a sudden they got an inkling of what it was like to be a more vulnerable, lower socioeconomic or, dare I say it, non-white person in this country, and they suddenly discovered that they didn't like it very much. And it sort of fostered a, a certain amount of empathy for those who have suffered for years under our less uh, the, the the darker angels of our nature, so to speak, and also, and again, you know, not not to be all warm and fuzzy and, and humanist, and and to get back to the brutal economic aspect of it, I think it was laid bare that um, if not the death knell, then the the stripping bare of neoliberalism and and its limits and its its destructive nature as well, and. Steve, you talked about, you know, we need to work out what we value. And if we value caring, it's not just that everybody benefits from whether you're Jerry Harvey's and Gina Reinhardt's of the world down to the, the most vulnerable and the most uh, marginalised, the economy benefits. You know, we've, the economy has stagnated for eight years. Our, you know, our wage growth has been non-existent for eight years as the limits of neoliberalism 
has been reached. And if we were to embed caring into every aspect of society, we wouldn't just benefit in the warm, fuzzy, socialist, hippie sense of the word. We would benefit massively economically as well. And that's been a really interesting tipping point to get to that stage of going, oh, actually, it actually turns out that there's a massive economic benefit to dealing with climate change. Who knew? You know, it's, it's not a massive cost to society. We don't have to radically, you know, we do have to radically change how we operate, but it's also we get to radically change that for better yes. and we will benefit from that. Yes. I think the, 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 the lesson there is that a lot more people will benefit from that way of operating than are currently benefiting from our 40-odd-year neoliberal experiment. And it, it's bizarre how um, people start backing, you know, we need to invest in our people, we need to have payments and subsidies and we have to have wage keepers and welfare and everything like that and nobody calls themselves a dull bludger anymore or anything like that even though that anybody that has ever relied on any sort of government support prior to 2020-2021 did assume all of those labels um and suddenly in 2021 everybody went oh no we're all the same you know we're all going through this because suddenly it's actually hard for some people the the lines of previously you know well-placed middle-class white people lining up at Centrelink when we went into lockdown. I, admittedly, that was March 2020. That was not so much 2021. But that was a real turning point, I think, in the national psyche where, uh, you know, people weren't dull bludgers for seeking help. Like we had a moral responsibility to people. One of the things that I, I, I'm concerned that we're going to see, <clears throat> I'm concerned that we're going to see over the coming few months as we come out of the summer which is typically a busy time for a lot of small businesses in particular, a lot of retailers, a lot of hospitality, pubs, cafes, restaurants, those coastal tourism businesses up and down the East Coast, similarly in, in and around Adelaide, the Adelaide Hills, wine country, you know, the southeast of WA and, and on the, the West Australian coast, they're not getting that trade. And a lot of them rely on that trade to make it through the winter. And I'm concerned, and I, I've, I've been talking sort of routinely with small business owners over the last eight weeks or so as we've gone through this major COVID outbreak, looking at that trade over that traditionally busy summer period, and they're not seeing it. They're trading at 30%, 40% of their normal levels, and they're concerned about their ability to stay open, let alone retain staff. They're, they're worried about their ability to keep their business running. So I, I, I still think that we're potentially going to see that type of uh, occurrence coming, but that's, you know, like that's something that's that's coming. Bringing it back to 2021 and maybe uh, sort of, you know, rounding out our, our discussion, which, is, which has been fabulous. If 2021 taught us something about ourselves as a nation that we probably should have already known, but has, has really been laid bare around what we value, who we value, and, and who, good, who gets looked after in our society and who gets looked after by our economy. I'm, I'm hopeful that 2022 provides us with that opportunity to do something about it, to change course, to reset what we do care about, to reset what we value, and to start thinking about an economy that works for people rather than 
the other way around. The the economy isn't the point. It's it's, it's there for a reason. It's it should be there to serve our well being as a community and as a society. It clearly hasn't been doing that in the way that we really need it to. It's been working primarily for the few rather than the many. And I think if we if we can start to tackle that in 2022, we'll really be on a on a good path. Yeah, I, I think the the notion that the economy serves society needs to be screened from the rooftops. And I, I think that the last two years has sort of demonstrated that to people that we can literally shut down the economy because of a pandemic. And guess what? Society keeps going. So the again, the neoliberal experiment of society being engineered to serve the economy was always a false premise. And I think that premise needs to be beaten to death and then buried and cremated. And our, our legislative and policy settings need to be reconfigured to allow so- the economy to serve society. And and also I think I think we haven't touched on foreign affairs, but I think also what we, we need to our, our our approach to to foreign relations also needs to be re-engineered and to again to be more caring to to look after Oceania and our Pacific um, island you know, communities, again, not ours, it's a colonial thing, but our neighbours, the people, you know, the people who share our region with us. And as a large and incredibly wealthy nation, we do have a moral and ethical and humanitarian responsibility to the people around us who are, I wouldn't say less fortunate, but less able to, you know, who don't have the resources and the wealth available to them is what I was getting at. And it's reflected again, uh, you know, probably look one of my, Smart RC highlights of 2021 was the fallout with um, French President Emmanuel Macron and the I don't think I know response to the notion that Morrison lied to him about the submarines. I mean, yeah, there was not enough popcorn in the world for that one, even though it was a very, very serious and, and very damaging international incident. It was still, as a piece of theatre, was was magnificent. The deliberate sort of pivoting back to an Anglo-centric view of the world uh, I think obviously has not gone unnoticed by the non-Anglo section of the world, but also it's so self, so limiting and so self-serving. I mean, Keating was talking about this in the 80s and the early 90s about being, you know, we are a, a, we are um, a country of Asia. The, the fact that we happen to have been invaded and colonised by white people from Europe, you know, it's a blip in history. It's, it is not a geographical reality. And Australia really needs to get its head out of the sand in terms of where we are geographically and, and the nations that we need to be talking to and not allying ourselves with, but trading and, and looking, you know, mutually looking after each other. Yeah, I think Australia is we're at this kind of really interesting point where we really can hopefully in 2022 really change the attitudes that we came out 2021 with, you know. We are this weird nation of our, our modern history, you know, only past 200 years is as a Western nation. But geographically, we are an Eastern nation. And so I think we need to start stepping out of this, you know, institution institutionalised western narrative that this is who we are we are such a new country let's approach it in that way and I think just in what you're saying before Alana where we were kind of talking about those issues with WA even being the sovereign nation of of WA and what kind of the future of Australia looks like our our stepping away from the the not in my backyard 
idea. We do actually, without it being cheesy and cliche, we actually do need to start coming together and we need to start coming together with our neighbours and we need to start looking at what does the future of togetherness actually look like. And, yeah, trying not to make that a, a cliche cliche sort of story that you know we've all heard before but in a genuine attempt of that we need to actually look at this differently and we need to approach it differently and we need to yes separate maybe Europe we're not going to get to Europe in the next three years we're not five years whatever we're not going to go back to our holidays over there all the time or or your trips to America or something but what does it actually look like in traveling locally or traveling in in our region and let's start changing the, the story of what Australia is meant to look like and what Australia is meant to do. I think one of the things that we're seeing and and have seen play out over the last few years, and it's and it's been quite quite stark due to the pandemic, is that we we lack a coherent national vision of who we are and and where we want to be headed as a country and in the absence of that coherent vision. And and it's not that we have competing visions, we actually just lack one. And so in the absence of that coherent vision, we're seeing individual decision makers at a state level in the different states and also at a national level making decisions that are based on short-term interests in a lot of cases, sometimes. And I think you, you talk about West Australia and Premier in WA, Mark McGowan, has shown a willingness to adopt a long-term view. And and he's taken a position that, you know, my job is to keep West Australians uh, safe. It was a philosophy that saw Victoria do reasonably well with Dan Andrews taking a similar view. My job is to keep Victorians safe. The decision-making has fallen apart reasonably quickly. And you can see it in National Cabinet. You can see it in, in a range of other venues that we don't have that we, we, we don't have that vision of, of, of where we're headed, what we're trying to get to. We, we don't have it around climate change. We don't have it around respect for women. We don't have it around reconciliation with First Nations people. We don't have it around where we see it in respect to Asia and, and, the, and the rest of the world. And it really does show. And again, like if, if 2021 taught us anything, it's that that's problematic. And in 2022, I really do hope that we start to see that articulation of a national vision that we can start to work collectively towards. Yeah, I think 2021 has really taught us that in 2022, as an election year, as a federal election looms, we have a really stark choice between, well, hopefully someone who is interested in, in actually leading the country, who has a vision for the country, and hopefully we'll give him a chance to do that versus the the person who flatly refused to lead the country and who has no vision and has no concept of a legacy post his political career. The absolute nothingness of Scott Morrison has been laid bare quite brutally by events, dear boy events. But I really hope that as a nation we go, we decide that we, you know, we need leadership. First of all, we need leadership. And second of all, we need leadership with a vision because we, we've just lived through what it means to have a series of, men, of, of prime ministers who either have no vision or in to give Turnbull a little bit of of, of uh, leeway and inability to implement that vision because his own party opposed it. But yeah, we, we need a cohesive leadership across the country because it's easy to blame the individual state premiers, premiers for the way they chose to approach the pandemic, but I think we need to put it in the context in that they were stepping up to 
to fill the vacuum that had been left at the federal level um, by our federal government and, and um, the either inability or refusal to, to lead us as a nation. To try and put a hopeful spin on, on all of this, much as 2022 has started really badly and is not the sort of, you know, the land of milk and honey that, that I think people were hoping it would be as we have left 2021 behind us. He's hoping that we can course correct and this time next year, when we reflect back on 2022, it's going to be a much happier and, and much uh, you know, more positive discussion. Let's hope so. Thanks, guys. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Rhiannon. Thanks, Lona. No worries. I think we can all agree that 2021 can be consigned to the dustbin of history, along with its predecessor, 2020. I do want to call out some of the shining lights of 2021, like the fact that Grace Tame was our Australian of the Year and single-handedly redefined the role. As I record this, Dylan Alcott has been named Australian of the Year for 2022, the first member of the disabled community to be awarded the honour, which is incredible, but also decades overdue. Congratulations to Dylan. He is an amazing advocate and sportsman, and I look forward to discussing his reign as Australian of the Year in our 2022 recap. As it is an election year and participating in elections is expensive, if you'd like to help us contest the next federal election, you'll achieve instant new favourite status if you donate to us. We're going to need $32,000 just to register our candidates to stand in the election, never mind things like core flutes, advertising, how to vote cards, or any of the other ephemera that elections require. If you set up a recurring monthly donation, email us at info at democrats.org.au to let me know, and I will thank you personally on the podcast and officially award you instant new favourite status. Can't go wrong. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening. 